0: We'll turn to Psalm 85, which is the next psalm in our summer series in the Psalms. Psalm 85 is one of 11 psalms specifically attributed to the sons of Korah, this group of Levites who served in the sanctuary and helped lead worship and song, who also wrote music and wrote songs for corporate worship. Revival is their focus in Psalm 85, This psalm is a corporate prayer for God to revive and to restore his people. It was written during a time of godlessness and unfaithfulness, when when these things were on the rise in the land, and there was much apathy and indifference towards God among God's people. Those who wrote this psalm were godly and faithful. They loved and they served the Lord their God. They saw what was going on in their nation and among the the people of God, and they cried out to God to bring a change. This psalm then is a plea for God to reverse the spiritual trajectory of a nation. A cry for God to bring about a great change. A prayer in song for God to bring revival. Psalm 85. Lord, you are favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You recovered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This is God's word for God's people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. You may be seated. And now let's go to Lord in prayer. You, God are our great, loving, gracious, merciful God. You are always God. When we are in seasons of great harvest, of plenty, times of peace, and when we are in times of great difficulty, when there is famine and pandemic in the land, you are still God and you are our God. Let us not forget this glorious truth that you are God, and by your grace, we are your people, for it rings true always, and may it make its way into our hearts more and more during this season. Lord, I pray for those this morning who are weak in faith. Maybe who have not been back to corporate worship in quite some time. Maybe who have who have made this pandemic a time of waywardness, not to draw near to you, to reflect on their lives, and and that this life will end. Instead, it has become a time to live for the things of this world, to fear man, not to fear God. I thank you, if there are any among us this morning or who will watch this or are watching this, that you have brought them to the church. You have brought your word to them if they're at home this morning. May they not linger in regret for long, but instead look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith, who is quick to forgive and to restore, to remind and refresh, who is humble and kind and who loves his people, for he died to win their souls back to you, our God. Spirit, I do pray that you would move among us this day, that you would turn our eyes Upon Jesus, that you would convict us if we are in need of conviction, that you would challenge us where we have grown cold and comfortable with things that are not to be comfortable for your people. I do pray for those who are especially experiencing great hardship, whether it be physical, emotional, spiritual, relational. Lord, may you be the the personal God that you are to them. May they experience, even through the preaching of your word, the singing of your people, the the confession of sin and the assurance of pardon, the, the time of prayer, a sweetness that comes over their souls and refreshes them. Lord, do what only you can do. Restore, revive, refresh, strengthen your church. Wake up the sleeping giant that is your church in this land. For your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, as we consider the increasing godlessness and unfaithfulness in this nation, As we look around and see wickedness, evil, and the rejection of God on the rise. As more and more people who once professed that that faith in Christ is the only way to be reconciled to God now deny that reality and they say that people can choose many paths to God. As we encounter, maybe in our own families, and maybe with people in this very church, Those who profess to be Christians, who say that Jesus has died for them, that he purchased them, that that grace alone is true, and yet they are apathetic and indifferent towards God and his law. It should be, if it isn't already, painfully obvious to us that this psalm speaks to our great, maybe even greatest, I, I think it is our greatest need today. You see, just as those who wrote the psalm saw the need for revival in their day, we find ourselves in need of revival today. Oh, how we need God to restore us again, as the psalmist cries out for in this psalm. How we need God to revive us again. This morning's psalm can be divided into three parts. The past, the present, and the future. In verses 1 through 3, the psalm recalls God's grace to his people in the past. Now, preaching through the psalms, we've seen this pattern where this is where so many of the psalms begin, looking back at what God has already done for his people as it strengthens and encourages and reminds God's people. And that's where this psalm again begins, looking to God's grace to his people in the past. The Lord had previously demonstrated his willingness before to be gracious towards his people, They didn't have to question if God would indeed be gracious because he had been in the past. In the past, God had been favorable to the land that he had given them. He had restored them to the land. They had been in exile as a consequence of their wickedness. God had brought them into different countries where they were were ruled by foreign kings who did not worship God. And they experienced discipline of the Lord. And now his people had been returned and and their their land was was once once again in their possession. God had forgiven their iniquity and covered their sin. He had withdrawn his wrath, his righteous wrath, and turned away his hot anger. That picture of God's anger being hot on his people. Then in verses 4 through 7, the psalmist begins to plea for God to bring revival in the present. The desire is for God to restore his people again, to put away his indignation toward them, to revive them so that they would rejoice in God again, afresh. Look at his grace and say, praise God, they would have joy in their salvation. The desire is for God to demonstrate to his people his his steadfast love. Yes, God always loves his people, but but these psalmists, these sons of Korah, they, they long for the nation to experience A demonstration of God's love. They want God to grant them the salvation from the wickedness and apathy that they experience all around them and to usher in this time of spiritual renewal and revival. Then in the last section, verses 8 through 13, the psalmist trusts God with the future. Though the plea is for revival in the present, those who trust in the Lord know that despite the godlessness and apathy around them, a day is coming... Even if those who write this psalm don't see it in their own lifetime, when the Lord will again speak peace to his people, they know that God's salvation is is always near to those who fear him. That one day God's glory will truly and fully again dwell in the land as it had in the past. And on that day, steadfast love and faithfulness will meet. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other. What beautiful imagery. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Faithfulness will spring up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. What a wonderful description for us to ponder in light of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The psalm ends with confidence in God that the Lord will give his people what is good. That he will give it abundantly. That unrighteousness will be overtaken by the God of righteousness who is going to come and lead his people through the chaos and the evil in their midst. As Christians, we know that the ultimate fulfillment of all these realities will come when our Lord Jesus returns again. For Jesus is our peace, for he has already made peace between us and God. Christian, you are at peace because Jesus came. He, he won your soul, as we just sang. He went to the cross to bear the wrath that you deserve. And so if you experience discipline, it's from a loving Father in heaven. It's not because God is against you. It's not because God is, is hating on you. It's because he loves you, and he's going to open your eyes to the reality of the consequence of your sin and the sin around you. There's peace between you and God because of Jesus, for he has made peace with God between you and and God through the cross. Because Christ came here, we have no one but God to fear. We don't have to fear man. And ultimately, we don't have to fear COVID-19 or what happens in this nation. Yes, we're to be wise, we're to vote, we're to take action, we're to speak up, we're, we're to speak up. But we do not have to fear. The only one to fear is God himself. God is with us and he will never leave us. The promise of Romans 8 remains the same. By the spirit of God, God now dwells, not in some temple or sanctuary. You don't have to go to some holy shrine or place to experience the presence of God because now he dwells in you. He dwells in his church, his people. Because of Jesus' sinless life, his sin-atoning death, and death-defeating life-giving resurrection, God's steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. We see that in the cross. The wrath, the righteous wrath of God being poured out on his son. Peace has come right there in the cross. Righteousness and grace and mercy are all there. Because of Jesus, faithfulness is already and will continue to spring up from the ground towards man. And the righteous God who loves us is looking down with a smile upon his people from heaven. Because Psalm 85 is a prayer for revival, and in light of our own need today for revival, our focus this morning will be very much on revival I hope that God uses this psalm to encourage those of you who are discouraged by what you see going on in this land, in this country, in the American church, and in the church throughout the world. That this psalm would remind you of what God has done in the past, and he can do even today. I hope that it reminds you, church, to pray for revival and to trust in the Lord your God, whatever comes in this land or in the future. I think it's helpful for us to begin by differentiating between revival and something called revivalism because at times they have been wrongly confused with one another. The word revival means a restoring of that which was in disrepair or a reviving of that which has become dry, weak, and lifeless. Revival is like what happens when someone restores a classic car they take this rusty, falling apart, broken down car and they return it to its former glory. I'm definitely not a car guy. I can't differentiate. You know, I've got to look at the logo and the sign. I, I can't tell you the difference between a 54 Chevy and a 64 Chevy, whatever. Um, I, I, I'm not a car guy. But if I'm driving down the road and the other way comes a classic car that's been restored, what do I do? And what do all my boys do who have a dad who's not a car guy so hasn't passed it on to them? Maybe they'll pick it up. What we turn our heads and say, That that was an awesome car. It's it's attractive, it's exciting. Revival is, is like what happens when someone who's, whose heart has stopped beating, either through CPR or the use of an AED, is, is brought back to life. It's amazing. Maybe you've seen a video of it happening or you've been there in person. It's shocking. It's scary. And then all of a sudden, this person who was lifeless, whose heart had stopped beating, it, it, their heart begins to beat again. Maybe they, they start moving their arms. They had no pulse, but now they're moving their arms and they're talking. It's amazing. In a true revival, that's what God does with his people, with his church. He restores them and he revives them. A a true revival is a surprising work of God. In this way, true revivals are God-centered and God-dependent. They happen when the sovereign God of the Bible decides to graciously move in such a mighty way that Christians who were broken down, who were weak, who refuse to be evangelistic? We are a church that believes evangelism is to be the natural outworking of a healthy church. We don't have an evangelism program or system. We say the church is to be evangelizing. You work here, you're an evangelist there. You're a neighbor to these people there. You're on this team. At some point, you better open your mouth and seek to proclaim the greatness of Jesus Christ. And sadly, so many times throughout church history, the church is dormant. And maybe you're one of those dormant Christians. We're in baseball season as a family. We're just coming to the end of it. And so baseball analogies come to mind. It's as if God will set up the tee for this dormant Christian. You know, put the ball on this little plastic and say, just, just hit it. You just got to kind of turn your hips. And if you've ever gone to watch t-ball games, it's, it's funny. You know, there's this kid who's just learning how to hold a bat. Sometimes it's too he- it's like almost as heavy as the kid. And the only way they can hit it is just kind of holding it there. And sometimes they hold it here and they just kind of swing their hips like this. It's as if that's all this dormant Christian has to do. God has set up the moment. This person is craving to know about this God. And, and, and he puts the, this evangelism opportunity on the tee. And, and you, Christian, you just have to turn your hips to just knock it off. And you don't do it. You're spiritually hibernating. But in a a revival, it's as if God refreshes and revives his people, resulting in in a renewed passion for God, and and there's an evangelistic fervor. People freely and easily begin to talk of Christ because they're consumed with the the, the God of the Bible. A true revival is something like God coming into a home that is, is heated by a fireplace, but the fire is so weak in that home that the room where the fireplace is is dark, And there's not even enough heat from that fire to warm those who are in the room. In a revival, it's it's as if God puts so many logs on that fire and begins to fan the flame of that fire so much that the fire lights up the entire room so much so that people outside the house can look into the windows and, and, and see that there's a fire in that house. And it's not just the people in that room that are heated up and warmed Anybody in the house is warm. You see, in a revival, God doesn't just change or save a few individuals. He does that all the time. All throughout the history of the world, God is saving individuals. Rescuing, redeeming, regenerating, declaring righteous by faith people, individuals. But in a revival... God changes groups of people, churches, maybe denominations that had drifted into social gospelism, which is another gospel. Maybe they've drifted into mainline liberal Protestantism that that does not preach Christ, but preaches a man-centered view of, of humanity. God changes these denominations, even these nations. As the late and great theologian J.I. Packer, who entered into glory the last week and put it in his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, revival is a social corporate thing, touching and transforming communities, large and small. Bible prayers for revival implored implored God to quicken not me, but us. And so that's what happens in a true revival. A movement of God that is a work of God changes families and churches and denominations and nations. If you're familiar with American or even pre-American history and church history, that's what happened in the 1740s, 50s, and 60s in this nation. Now, I do not believe that this nation was started by all Christians, that all the founding fathers were Christians. I believe many of them were deists. That is, they believed that there was a God, but they did not reference the God of the Bible. That's partly why you don't see Jesus Christ mentioned in so many of our important documents. Because they believed in a benevolent God, but they did not name that God to be the God of the Bible. There were founding fathers who were Christians who believed the gospel and preached the gospel. And yet you may not know this, that before we became a nation, in the 40s and 50s of the 1700s, there was a great revival called the Great Awakening. And it is that revival that set the tone for and the direction for this country. And, and why I believe God blessed this country and why we've been blessed so much is because you can trace it back to that Great Awakening in the 1740s and 1750s. On the other hand, speaking of revival and revivalism, revivalism is a religious movement that is man-centered and pragmatic. It relies on certain methods and formulas to manufacture a desired outcome. Revivalism is often marked by emotionalism. Individuals who may earnestly desire God to work, they work themselves and others into a frenzy. And so we're not one of those churches that will lock the sanctuary doors and, and those doors and say, uh, we're going to do some altar calls and until everybody comes up to the altar and professes to, to trust in Christ or comes back to Jesus, we're not opening the doors and you have to stay here. That, that would be in the stream of revivalism. You know, we we just play the same song over and over and we sing the same chorus over and over until we get really sweaty and we just pass out by exhaustion. We say, God must have met and moved in this place. We turn the heat up. It's warm in here already, but, but if we're one of those churches, we would turn the heat up and say, wow, you can feel the heat from the Lord. No, that's just, there's no air conditioning in the room and everybody's hot. That's revivalism. To return to the fire metaphor... Revivalism is like watching a recorded video of a fire on your TV. Have you seen these? You can buy a DVD or a Blu-ray now, so it'll look even better if you get the Blu-ray version. And you can put it on and watch a fireplace. And that's supposed to, you know, set the mood or give you some ambiance or something like that. Like, wow, I have a fireplace. It's for those of us who don't yet have a fireplace, I guess. It's the, the, the imitation Now, that might be interesting to look at, but a video of a fire won't provide the same light, and it cannot provide you with the heat of a real fire. It's not the real thing. If you've ever driven by a church that had on its sign, Revival Every Wednesday Night, that church is likely in the stream of revivalism. Now, to be sure, God could decide in his grace and wisdom to bring about a true revival during that pre-scheduled revival meeting, if he chose to. But putting revival on a sign or or in your calendar on your phone doesn't mean that God will do that. And God is just as likely to bring about a true revival any other night or even on a Sunday morning. And I do pray often for revival. When I'm in my office and I've done my final editing on my my sermon, uh, I pray, God, move in a mighty and powerful way this morning. Bring about revival in this church, in this area, in this land. And he might do it whenever, whenever, on a Sunday morning or possibly at a pre-scheduled revival meeting, but he is free to do it whenever and however he wishes. So in summary, the difference between a true revival and revivalism is that a true revival is a sovereign work of God that changes churches, denominations, or nations. Well, revivalism is a pragmatic work of man that does not produce any real lasting change. From Scripture and church history, we can see, one, that revivals are real. So you might say, I I could never picture that. Well, open your Bible and read about church history. And you'll be encouraged, and you may need to repent, because they're there. They've shaped, like I've already mentioned, our country. God works in a mysterious, mighty, sovereign way, and brings about a great movement of revival. So that's one thing. But even from Scripture and church history, we, we see another thing. That revivals, true revivals, have certain marks. They produce certain fruits. Whether looking at the revivals in the Bible, like the one during the days of King Josiah, or the revival that took place under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah in Israel, or the revival that took place after the apostle Peter preached the gospel in Acts two forty one, and 3,000 souls received his word, trusted in Christ, and were baptized or the revival that took place during the Reformation or the Puritan Age or the Great Awakening in the 18th century, true revivals will bear at least four marks. Now, Jonathan Edwards, who preached famously, maybe the most famous sermon in this continent's history, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, considered by many to be one of, if not the greatest American theologian, he gave 12 marks, or distinguishing signs of true revival, I'm just going to give you four because, one, I'm not Jonathan Edwards, so I'm not going to try and do that. Um, and I don't have as much time as Jonathan Edwards did. I think he preached hours, like hours, long sermons. And, and so I'm going to give you four marks that are very much in the line uh, with what uh, Edwards uh, said were the 12 marks. And we will find these four marks mentioned directly or alluded to within this morning's psalm. First, in a revival, the word of God is central. All true revivals come as a result of God's word being read, taught, understood, and preached clearly, faithfully, and boldly. It's not by churches buying more laser shows and um, smoke machines and getting all that, that, that they can to entertain the world. You know our philosophy of ministry, or you should. What we win people with is what we win people to. So if we win them with the Bible, we win them with the gospel, we win them with Christ, we will keep them with Christ. But if we win them with laser shows and smoke machines and rock guitars and concerts, that's what they're going to want more of. In revivals, people are one with the word and the gospel and with Christ. In a true revival, there is a return to scripture. People want to hear from God. Look at verse 8. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. The psalmist wants to know what God says. The psalmist is not ultimately most interested in what the king or his countrymen have to say. He wants to hear from the only one who can save him and his people. The only one who can overcome the wickedness and spiritual apathy that is all around him. And so every true revival is marked by a return to the Bible. But not in some dry rote way. There is a renewed and greater desire to hear, to read, to understand God's word. People desire. They long to know what does God say. They no longer will find the Bible boring, irrelevant, or meaningless. When they hear scripture, they hear God speak. They hear words of life. They find hope, peace, and truth. I remember going through the book of Exodus a few years ago. We preached through the book of Exodus. And we would read big chunks, two, three chapters of Exodus, long chapters. And maybe I need to repent of this, but but I felt it. And I don't go with my emotions and say they're the ultimate reality. So, Lord, please forgive me if this is not the case. But I remember reading one, two, three chapters of Exodus, this exciting book that records the work of God to rescue his people from bondage and slavery, that points us to Christ and his great redeeming slave-setting free work in Jesus All the connections and the imagery, this beautiful book, and feeling, and at times looking up in between a verse and seeing people disinterested. Feeling as if I just, if I continue to read, and I did, that more and more people would just kind of roll into a spiritual slumber. But in times of revival, the opposite is the case. Preacher, keep on reading the Bible. Read it, read it. I want to hear more. What is Exodus 35? I know we read about that before. Let's read it again. I'll give you a few examples of what this looks like starting in Scripture. We see the word of God is central in the great revival that took place in Israel under King Josiah. Now, Manasseh was Josiah's wicked father. Manasseh had led Israel into idolatry. He had adopted the religions of the pagan nations all around him, and he led the people of God who were in covenant with the one true God into worshiping false gods. But as a young boy, King Josiah sought after God. The Lord showed his mercy on the people of Israel by taking out, by by removing Manasseh. And so Josiah was instituted as king at the age of eight, and he already loved the Lord and sought after God. At 16, as he had initiated restoration work on the temple, Uh, They they found the book of the law that was hidden in one of the walls of the temple. You see, one of the faithful priests saw the spiritual trajectory of the people going away from the Lord. And so he took the word of God and he hid it in the wall because he knew that at some point when God would bring revival in the land, they would repair the temple and they would find the, the word of the Lord hidden there in the temple. And so the word of God was brought to Josiah and he read it. And he grieved over what he saw and the sins of the people and his own sin. And so he called all the people to gather and he read the book of the law to the people. Young Josiah reads the law, the word of God to the people of God. And after that, Israel entered into, they renewed the covenant that God had made with his people God's word initiated and brought about the change in that nation at that time. The word of God was also central in the revival that took place under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. In Nehemiah 8, 1 through 3, we're told that all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday. Ezra gets up from early morning until midday, and he reads the scriptures. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of, of Allah. They didn't groan because Ezra kept on reading, oh, oh, another chapter. They were attentive. Give me more of God's word, Ezra. The people asked for the Bible to be read to them. And it was read to them from morning until midday. And they were attentive. They didn't fall asleep. They weren't bored. They weren't looking forward to what was next to something better they wanted to hear from god who speaks to us through his word consider the protestant reformation what was at the very center of this great gospel rediscovery during those days what brought about this world-changing movement that rediscovered the good news that justification is by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone to the glory of god alone it it, it has shaped all of our worship Brothers and sisters, we have a local church building. We have this place. Nations exist. You can trace it back to the Reformation. The Protestant church, the one protesting the the false gospel of the Roman Catholic church, exists because of this great movement of God. And what was behind it all? The translation of the Bible into the common languages of the people. The word of God was freed from ecclesiastical authorities. That, that it held on to it and, and kept it in Latin. So those who spoke German or, or um, French or whatever other languages couldn't understand it. They, they didn't go to school. They were farmers. They had no access. It was only through this priest who was the mediator between God, Jesus, the priest, and then the people. And it was as the word of God was translated into their own language that this reformation happened. Some of you may remember this quote from Martin Luther. I've shared it from the pulpit before uh, during our Reformation series as we looked at the, the Reformation and celebrated uh, the, the Reformation. I shared it, but it's worth sharing here again. When asked how the Reformation happened, Luther said, I opposed indulgences and in all the papists, the popes, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. The word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. If you read about all the great revivals in scripture and throughout church history, it was always this truth coming back to the Bible, to the reading and the preaching of God's word. That's what God uses to bring about and to spread revival. Whether it was a king like Josiah, a priest like Ezra, a prophet, the apostle Peter, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, who was used by God as the great evangelist during the great awakening here. The word of God went out and the spirit of God did a surprising and great work of revival in and through Christ's church. Church, if we want to see true spiritual change in our land, in our families, in our churches, It will come as the Bible is read more, studied more, understood more, taught more, preached more. Psalm 85 is full of truths that the writers of the psalm only knew because God had revealed these truths to them in his word. And so people need to know what God says. And in the Bible, God has, God is, and God will speak to us. Do you want to know what God is saying at this time? Open your Bible, read it, hear it, listen. A second mark of a true revival is a greater awareness of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. Now these could be two separate marks, but the first always causes the second. As more and more people hear the Bible, as it is taught and understood, the holiness of God is put on display and people begin to see more and more how great, how big, how glorious God is and how weak and how little and how sinful they are apart from God. Why is so much of the American church anemic and weak? Because they have a low view of God. Because consumerism has infiltrated the church. Pragmatism, revivalism, all these man-centered means have stolen, have, stolen, have, have taken away a high view of God among God's people. But here's the thing. As you read the Bible as you study the Bible, as you hear it being preached expositionally, going through books of the Bible, as we look at the Psalms and we dig into what that Psalm is getting at, what happens? You get a high, mighty, right view of God. You see that this God is so holy, so righteous, that you are to bow down, get down on your knees at times, and worship this great, awesome God, You begin to see yourself as you truly are, a creature. Yes, made in God's image, but a creature who came into existence, who has an end date and will go into eternity, either forever in God's presence or forever experiencing God's wrath. That changes your view of God. No longer is it, what can I get out of this? Uh, Life exists for me. Everything's about me. Give me money. Give me stuff. The American dream, it becomes, I exist for God. God is great. Man is weak and pitiful apart from God. So you open your Bible and you get this greater awareness of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. In a revival, God begins to correct many minds and change many hearts. And not just out there in the world, but in the church. He causes more more worship to happen. There's more repentance of sin. Revival brings the realization of one's own sin and guilt before God. And when this happens, people stop making excuses. They stop just saying, I'm a victim, I'm a victim. They they stop pointing at others and they begin to point at themselves. They confess their sin freely to God and to others. They cry out for God's mercy and grace. They repent and they believe the gospel. I've sat down with people, whether it was because some husband committed adultery or some secret sin was exposed or some some somebody was caught in sin, and and they, they want to meet and they want to talk. And their pastor, they meet with the elders, and, and we we meet with them. And it's like we gotta pull out any admission of sin. Oh, uh, she did this. He did that. You know, it was just a, I was just really tired, and I gave in to sin. It, it was tiredness that caused it. I, I, it's not. I I have wandered from the Lord my great God who saved me. They're not freely. It's like we got to, and, and you know what so often happens? They just wander away. We have to later on put them under church discipline, just saying they're not a Christian, and they duped us. Or we, we, we hope that they are a Christian, and they return as we say, we can't, we can't acknowledge that you are a Christian. But then there are those times when somebody just comes and openly, they're not, they're not ashamed to tell the truth. I have sinned. I've sinned against the Lord and his people. And when, when a time of revival happens, people do that. Brother, I'm sorry. Now, let me give you 10 ways that I've sinned against you. Sister, I'm sorry. And it's almost as if you have to convince them that they haven't sinned because you didn't experience any of that. But they're just opening up their heart and they're saying, this was what's going on. This is why I talked to you that way. This is why I did that. This is why I hoarded. This is why I did all these things. Please forgive me. It's beautiful. People are repenting and believing the gospel. This awareness of God's holiness and man's sinfulness is is what is driving verses 1 through 7 in Psalm 85. You see, in a revival, people are sensitive to and turn away from their sin. The word of God lights up their darkness and the spirit of God brings power to change. They're not just saying, yep, I admit it, I did this. No, it's "I, I admit I did these things and I hate that I did these things and I don't want to do these things. This is what happened in Ezra's day. In Nehemiah 9, the people together confessed their sin to God. Imagine this revival. People coming out of their homes, gathering together in the square and saying, we have sinned. We have done this. It wasn't this emotional high saying, this is great. You know, Ezra, play another song. Let's jam out with Jesus. This is a, my heart is broken for my sin and the sin of the nation." And they turn to God. In a time of true revival, the worship and awe of God is on the rise. And idolatry and evil is on the decline. The church becomes more and more a shining light that brings heat and warmth to those around them. To the nation that they find themselves in. A third mark of true revival is that there is a genuine desire for God. More and more people in a family, a church, a nation are seeking after, are delighting in, and to use the word that we've, we've used in our mission statement, are treasuring Christ above all. They long for more of God. Now, if you know uh, American church history and you know uh, different movements that have happened in, in recent history, you've lived long enough, you're familiar with something called the moral majority. It was this movement where where Christians, along with conservative uh, groups within politics, joined together and there was a movement and, and, and some really good things happened. And one of the rally cries that came out of that is get back to the Bible. Get back to the Bible. Amen, amen. But here's the thing. We don't want to just get back to the Bible. We want to get back to to the Bible and believe what the Bible says and do what the Bible calls us to do, which is one reason why after I read the scriptures, I say, may we hear it, believe it, and obey it. It's not just returning to the Bible for Bible returning sake. It's let's get back to the Bible, believing what it says about God and us and doing what God is calling us to do, delighting in him. The great preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said that, the inevitable and constant preliminary to revival has always been a thirst for God. We return to the Bible because we want God. He goes on to say, a living thirst for a knowledge of the living God and a longing and a burning desire to see him acting, manifesting himself and his power, rising and scattering his enemies. Now, it is tempting for us To just give in to fear in this season. To complain about the the different terrible, wicked movements that we see cropping up within this country. Whether it's Marxism or communism or theological liberalism. And to just say, ah, and give up. But you know what we end up sounding like? Just like the world. The conservative non-Christian who agrees with all of the, the policies that we agree with but has no hope in God. But those who are longing for God are are to live lives that are holy and are full of joy in God because that will attract these people who are longing. They're afraid too. Now some of the most prideful, they won't admit it. I've, I've had the conversations. Oh yeah, you know, they pretend like everything's fine, like they're strong. And then, you know, COVID-19 stuff comes up or the riding comes up and some of these, these really wicked and evil political movements and groups come, come to the conversation. And then there's just like, oh man, I'm afraid. And if we fall into fear and we act just like them, we will lose out on the opportunity to bring our joy to them. Joy is attractive. Joy in God is beautiful. And the people who are not trusting in Christ are looking for joy. And they may find it temporarily in some political movement. They may temporarily find peace in going out and buying a few guns. But that will fade. That joy does not last. And so we, church, are to find joy, pursue, delight in, treasure in Christ so that we are prepared when those conversations happen. And I do need to repent because at times I have not been prepared. I've just kind of, oh, yeah, agreed where I can agree and shake, shaking my head where I couldn't agree. Oh man, church, this is a prime opportunity for gospel ministry. And there is also this, this reality in church history and in scripture. It is so often in times of great spiritual lethargicness and apathy that God brings about that great Revival. It could just be that we are on the cusp. And I'm not trying to just get you excited and make you feel good. I'm I'm trying to increase your hope that this could be the case and your desire for these things and your involvement in these things, that we could be on on the cusp of a true great revival in this nation. Because I do believe, according to Scripture, it's getting worse and wicked and evil more and more in this land. But in True Revival, Stephen Lawson writes, the word is not only taught and heard anew, but it is also received and kept. Suddenly, there is an overwhelming desire to apply the scripture to one's own life, putting it into practice with a new resolve. Revival always brings about this effect. It is a time of renewed commitment to return to the scripture in order to obey it. And where does it start? It starts with the people of God. Those who already believe it who already desire to obey it. It starts within the church, this great revival. I remember reading about, and one of my greatest joys in seminary was, was studying and reading about church history. Oh, like it just strengthens and, and increases your joy in God as you remember and look at what God has done in the past. The story about Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones and how he was he was a He was a physician. He was one of the top physicians in his field and studying to to serve the Lord as a doctor. And then the Lord called him into ministry. It was a clear and, and, and obvious call. And then he was sent to this kind of mission church where the church was dying. It was barely a church. There were just a few people. And what did he do? He preached the Bible. He proclaimed the gospel to this dying church. And in a sense, a small revival broke out in that church and in this small Welsh community. And I, I remember this story that so strengthened my resolve to pray for revival and to look for revival and, and just brought joy to my heart. He, there's this recording of, of this town drunk in that, that, that city this town where Lloyd-Jones was the preacher and how he used to mock the Christians who would go to hear the doctor preach. How he would laugh at them and just be drunk in his stupor and lying around. And everybody knew the town drunk. And in that time of Lloyd-Jones' ministry, God moved in a great way. And he saved that town drunk. And that town drunk became the town evangelist. He became a light, a, a reminder to the people in that town of that great work that God did by his grace. And that moves us to the fourth mark of a true revival. There is an increase in prayer. During the Great Awakening in the 1740s and 50s, many pastors saw the attendance at their regularly scheduled prayer meetings balloon, and churches had to increase the number and the length of their prayer meetings. People wanted to gather together, not to sing, which I love singing, not even to hear preaching, which I love to preach, and I love to hear preaching, simply to pray. Some even said that, that in the times of a revival, the, the number of people attending the, the regular scheduled prayer meetings and those that they added to their schedule was the same number of those who had formerly attended worship on the Lord's Day. For us, that would be like this. Uh, but pre-COVID-19 pandemic restrictions, all that stuff, we had around 300 or so people attending within two services on a Sunday morning. You know, High 200s, mid 300s, somewhere in there. So we'll say 300. In a time of revival, it would be like we would have 300 people coming to our morning prayer meetings on Wednesdays at 6.30 a.m. And then 600 people coming to worship on the Lord's Day. That was the experience for some of these local church ministers in a time of revival. Wow. People just wanted to pray. You see, in a true revival, more and more people pray, and they pray more and more it's not manufactured. It's not that they're being forced to pray before they eat or they just merely pray before they go to bed. It's that the Spirit of God moves in such a way through the people of God that people want to hear from God through his word. And after they hear from God through his word, they begin to pray to God in prayer. In a time of revival, prayer becomes more and more what it should be for God's people. Natural, normal, and necessary. Like breathing. Most of us don't have to think at all about breathing. We just breathe. The same is true of prayer in a time of revival. We just pray. That, that scripture that calls us to pray without ceasing, it makes sense. We stop arguing about what it means and we just say, yeah, that's my experience. I'm walking and I'm praying. I'm talking and all of a sudden I'm praying. I'm with a few other believers and all of a sudden we find ourselves in prayer. I'm praying before dinner and it's not just that same table prayer. Maybe we were taught by our family growing up that is a fine prayer to pray sometimes. I'm praying for 10, 15 minutes. I look down, I start to eat and the food's cold. Why is it? Because I was lost in prayer. I'm praying at night for my children's salvation. I'm praying for my church to be revived and refreshed. I just, I can't help but pray because it's like breathing, we just pray. Look at, at the psalm again. Look at the heartfelt prayer of this faithful remnant of God's people crying out to God in prayer in verses 4 through 7. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. When's the last time you prayed like that, church? When you've cried out to God, pleaded, knowing the gospel, believing the gospel, looking at what he's done in scripture and throughout church history. Lord, will you not restore us, please? Show us your steadfast love. You see, these are not dry, lifeless, superficial prayers. The psalmist is not going through religious motions. These believers are longing for God to bring revival in their midst. Lord, we've heard the stories from our grandparents. We know how you've shown your favor in the past. We read it in scripture, how you bless this land, restored, forgiven, covered sin. We know how you turned away your wrath. You turned away your hot anger. Do it again, Lord. Bring revival. This is another reminder of why it's so helpful for us to to know biblical and church history Because it so encourages us to to remember God's acts of grace in the past. Past when we face personal, church-wide, or national crisis and trials. Whether they be pandemics, or riots, or racism, or political chaos, or secularism. We read the Bible and we see how God graciously worked in the past. We read Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you don't have it, get it. These short three, four paragraph writings of, of the stories of those who have gone before us who have died and, and, and the recordings start in Scripture and, and, even, and they continue on through the Reformation and times of revival. We read about the Great Awakening and about how God used people like Paul, Timothy, Lydia, Martin Lloyd-Jones, William Carey. We, we heard about Jim and Elizabeth Elliot last week. So many others. And, and we see when we look at these stories, God doing great things. How he used these people for his glory. How he answered their prayers. And what does it lead us to do? Pray. Pray more and bigger prayers for God to work and change the spiritual trajectory of our families, our churches, our nation, the world. I am convinced that this is where we're at as a nation. As a people. Where the American church is going. Downwards. Spiritually speaking. Doesn't matter where the economy is at, doesn't matter who's in the office, what political movement is winning the day, spiritually speaking, decline. And so we need to be praying, looking at the past, remembering our great and holy God and his grace to us in Christ, and looking towards and praying for a reversal of the trajectory. He did it back then, he can do it again. In closing, Psalm 85 teaches us to remember God's grace in the past. To plead for God to bring revival in the present. Oh, church, do not become like those complaining, low in faith, nominal Christians. Your God sent his son. And his son died on the cross and was risen from the dead. So no matter where this country goes. And remember, every other nation and empire has fallen. If the Lord tarries, I do believe that this nation and empire will fall too. And so do not put your hope in this country. Put your hope in Christ. May you and we and the church in America be a bright beacon of light, bringing warmth to the souls who are craving for hope and looking for joy. Plead for revival and remember to trust God with our future. As I said earlier, true revival is a work of God. We can't fake it. We can't, we can't uh, do the right things to, to, to muster it up. But there are things to be done. And so I'll, I'll end this morning by asking you to join me in praying for this very thing, that God would do what only God can do, that he would bring true revival in this land. Let's pray. Oh, sovereign, great, mighty, gracious God, how we long for Revival. Some of us need revival ourselves. Old and young saints who have grown cold, whose heart's greatest desire is not Christ, but stuff, things. Oh God, we repent of our idolatry. Please, Lord, change our hearts. Forgive us and use us, not because we deserve it, but because we are your people, bought by your Son. And we long, our hearts are beginning to long more and more for what we see in Scripture, for what you've done in the past. True revival. Lord, restore and revive your people. Bring a great awakening to your people. May it begin with each of us and spread across this land. We pray that you would do what you have done in the past. We ask that you would do it again. Father, restore us in this land. Change many hearts and minds. Cause your word to go forth from your people. Help us to proclaim your gospel more and better. Increase our awareness of your holiness and our own sinfulness apart from you. Increase our desire, our passion, our treasuring of Christ. Make us a people who who pray and pray more. May prayer become as natural to us as breathing so that you are glorified and your people rejoice. We pray this in Jesus' great name, amen.